Whether we like it or not, the internet has become indispensable. It connects us to the world and to each other. And now during COVID, it's how many of us are working and how our children are learning. Access to the internet is no longer a luxury. It's become a necessity. Most developed countries have universal internet access, but not us. Here in the richest country in the world, only some people have access. This is a failure of government. This is a national disgrace. This is a problem we must solve. And this is Green Street. The current pandemic has exposed a lot of shortcomings of our federal government and its leaders, and has also shown what leadership actually looks like in the case of Governor Cuomo. Whether or not you agree with all of his policies, you can't argue with the numbers. But we're facing a new school year without any clear idea of how that is going to happen. One thing we know for sure, a lot of kids are going to be learning using the internet rather than sitting in class. And that brings up an issue that's not just limited to New York, but is playing out all over the country. Some people have safe, reliable, secure access to broadband internet, and some people don't. But the good news is there's a solution to this problem, community fiber optic broadband. It's super fast, reliable, secure, private, and way less expensive than commercial fiber. Last week, Patty and I spoke with Chris Mitchell, the director of Community Broadband Network's initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Chris is the country's leading expert on municipal fiber optic, and he began by telling us a little about the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Here's our interview with Chris Mitchell. It's older than I am. I've been with it for 13 years, working on broadband, which is the newest program that's been added to it. Uh, but it's a 45-year-old nonprofit organization does national research and advocacy, um, works with a lot of allies. So in some ways, we sometimes get accused of being a think tank, but we, we, br we bristle at that a little bit because we get out and do work. We try to see what's really happening out there, and, and we're not blind, blinded by ideology. And so, but our goal is generally that people are able to make decisions over the, the things that affect them. It's one of our principles that people should have a say in the policies that affect them. And so when it comes to broadband, uh, 15 years ago, we recognized people were going to de be dependent on it. We recognized that, that local businesses would need it, that, that you know, families would need it, but that local governments didn't have the authority to require it available. They had no say over the pricing of it or reliability or speeds. You know, local governments basically had their hands tied. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so we wanted to say, what can local governments do in that situation? And we came to look at community networks. Um, we weren't the first there. There's other organizations that saw the promise, and there had been community networks for a long time. But uh, we continue to believe that it is one of the best options for a community that wants to make sure it's going to have high-quality Internet access. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And affordable high-quality Internet access. Right. We want to make sure that everyone can access it. Right. And so 
you know, affordable can mean different things. Uh, one, we want to make sure that, that people can afford it who have good incomes. You know, mm-hmm. we don't think it should be 100 bucks a month. But for people who have fixed incomes and things like that, we'd like to see policies in place to make it available at $10 a month for some kind of basic connection that will allow them to do what they need, or even free, depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. So affordable can mean different things, but our goal is that everyone is able to access a fast, affordable, and reliable connection. Wow. Okay, this is great. So clearly, you've, there's some people out there who don't want what you want. You know, there are people out there who are looking to, uh, to make a, a buck on, uh, on providing internet service. What kind of obstacles have they been putting in the way of community-owned broadband? Yeah, I think that's, that's the, the thing that a lot of people focus on is how the big cable and telephone companies have really tried to stop this. They've passed laws in many states. Um, they go out of their way to try to scare local elected leaders if they're thinking about this. Um, and that, that may be them saying, hey, you know, these networks don't do very well. Look at this research. They're all going to fail. Or it might be saying, we're going to run a candidate against you in the next election. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yeah. it can get, it can get yeah. pretty scary for elected officials that sure. are yeah. looking at these solutions. But but I have to say, like, one of the things is that I, you know, I wouldn't say that um, I'm opposed to people making a buck on broadband. Um, I, I fully support that. I think there's a lot of networks that are, are for-profit local companies that do a really good job. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the big companies that basically not only want to make all the bucks, they want to deny the ability of anyone else to make any money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I feel like that's fundamentally different. And so one of the things that, one of the varieties of community networks is predicated on uh, partnerships with existing for-profit companies, trying to make sure that they can compete, but that none of them are able to just take over the market entirely and and extract wealth from the community um, in unjust ways. So are you supported in in the law with that concept? I would think that the government would encourage, you know, healthy competition among companies that want to provide those services. Yeah, I... I think if you ask the folks at the Federal Communications Commission uh, who regulate this, they would say they're all in favor of competition. And I think they honestly believe it. But the Federal Communications Commission is, is sort of structured in a way that has made it mostly responsive to the big, the big monopoly cable and telephone companies. And there's a the whole literature on this. Um, it's called being captured, regulators being captured by an industry they regulate. And, and what it just means is their perception is warped, and they only really think of things through the vision of those big companies. Mm-hmm. And so when, when they make policies, I think they are trying to figure out how they can help AT&T invest more and things like that. But what's really resulted in the best networks are the smaller companies, um, which includes small for-profit companies. There's there's many hundreds of them. Um, it includes cooperatives in rural areas that have been making important investments. Again, there's hundreds of those. And it includes municipalities that have been building networks. And while there's hundreds of those, it's also worth noting there's fewer than 100 municipal fiber networks that are citywide. Mm. Uh, this is something that's still growing. But the situations in which a uh, city owns the network and it offers service to everyone in the community, um, that's a little bit more rare, although there's just so much interest in it right now, because I think for so many people, they feel just stuck with the big telephone and cable companies, and they don't see a, a private sector solution that will help them. And I'm sure COVID has ratcheted up the interest in this significantly because we've got everybody working and learning from home. 
Yes. Yeah, and unfortunately, I mean, there's millions of Americans who wish they could be doing that, but they have to go out to find Wi-Fi somewhere in order to do it, which I, I know is your point. Um, but I think it's, it's worth remembering that, you know, whether you're looking at federal policy, state policy, or even in many communities where there's a lack of access, that's a failure of policy. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's 2020. We've been working at broadband policy for so long. We knew it was essential, and we just, um, our elected leaders failed us um, in terms of making their necessary policies to make sure everyone had good access. Mm-hmm. And even today, I mean, we still don't, we see elected leaders that are saying, oh, this is my number one issue, and it's so important. <laughs> but then they're not actually doing anything, or they're only doing things that make it look like they are pretending you know, to get something done. Sure. So just out of curiosity, what percentage of the people in this country are getting their internet access through some sort of community system? Around 1%. Okay. So it's really small, but it's growing. That's right. And in rural areas, it's um, much more significant because of the electric and the telephone cooperatives. But the rural population is such a small part of the population mm-hmm. that um, even if it's like 30% of the rural population, it doesn't show up that significantly in the national population. So, uh, you know, can I ask you a question? Because we're really engaged on the, on the 5G issue right now just because people are so concerned about these antennas being placed in such close proximity to where they live. People were kind of used to... Uh, you know, a large uh, antenna along the highway, sometimes dressed up as a tree, or you know, <laughs> or a, or a you know, a large antenna on top of a water tower in some kind of remote area, you know, in the town. Now all of a sudden, they're they're placing them, you know, within a couple feet, literally, of uh, you know, of their homes, and so people are really pushing back against it. So how has the existence of community broadband influenced the build-out of 5G infrastructure, or has it? Yeah, I, I, I guess I, the most honest answer is we, we don't really have good data on it yet. Um, I mean, 5G infrastructure is still more hyped than it is reality. Sure. Um, and so now if, you, you know, if you go to crowded communities in New York and Florida, you'll certainly see that's where it is. Um, and those are areas that often don't have municipal networks. Uh, the municipal networks have, the largest one is in Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee, which is 160,000 people and some of the surrounding communities that pushes that number up higher. But it gives you a sense the most dense areas have not had community networks. The 5G, to some extent, is trying to solve two different things. And we're not sure in which direction either one of them Oh, really? You know, one is continuing to serve mobile devices, your, your cell phone, your tablet, things like that. Um, and then the other piece of it is, is whether we're going to see competition where, you know, a Verizon or an AT&T would offer a home service over that 5G connection that would compete with a local connection. And that's where I think community networks can really make a big difference because, If you have people that are on a good wired connection, that's gonna offer faster speeds and more reliability and often a lower cost, especially if it's a community run network, Mm -hmm. uh, than over the cellular system. And that's because the cellular system is just less reliable. 5G is a a technology, it uses spectrum that does not pass through many materials. And so even as the wind blows, you can see a connection fluctuate. Mm. One of the things that I would say is that I would expect if you look at the companies and where they're trying to put 5G close to homes, 
it's generally going to be in areas where they think they can get a lot of customers. And so if those areas already have successful networks, I think we'll see less 5G in those areas. But it's, it's really hard to make any definitive statements about it, you know, except that I, I would say that if you're concerned about 5G, that a lot of the press reports you read may be, uh, seem, make it seem like 5G is showing up everywhere, but it just isn't. Yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah. uh, you know, there's, it, it's, in, it's in NFL football stadiums and places like that, exactly. but Verizon and AT&T, they've mostly lied about how aggressive they're being. Um, you know, they've overstated it in part because one of the things these carriers use is they're trying to get people scared to think that 5G is going to be everywhere, and so it's not worth building a community network mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. all of their needs will be taken care of. Right. Um, and so that's a, that's a piece of information that we try to push back on. I see. That's good. So, well, and of course, it's not really, the, you know, these small cells are not really 5G. They are 4G um, because you always need the 4G for talk and text, and the 5G is just going to be these... You know these beams that are going to be that are going to be utilized only when you know when needed. that when mm-hmm. needed as the as the user is drawing on them with the Internet of Things or whatever it is that they want to use that 5G can can um, supply for them. Um, anyway, uh, it, it's all very interesting. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest is Chris Mitchell, director of the Community Broadband Networks Initiative at the Institute for Local Self Reliance. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Green Street. We're talking with Chris Mitchell, director of the Community Broadband Networks Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Here's more of our interview. Can we talk about the situation in New York City? Because we've, you know, we we really would love to have some answers uh, on this one. And um, we had a plan at some point for a community-owned fiber broadband service, didn't we? There's um, a plan that was developed and released earlier this year that was a long time in the making and I think is a very smart plan. Um, It's called the Master Internet Plan or um, Internet Master Plan. I always get confused which word is first. But at any rate, it it is still operating to some extent. This is a plan that would have built a significant number of significant amount of municipal broadband throughout the city, although it wouldn't necessarily have then connected individual homes or uh, families or apartment buildings. The idea was that the city would basically build a network all around that then, whether it was a cooperative 
in the neighborhood or a for-profit company or you know perhaps even a building owner themselves they would then hook into that connection because it would be right there on the corner for them and then they would get an affordable rate to get on the internet effectively uh, it would have spurred a lot of different business plans and opportunities for neighborhood connectivity in ways that when we talk about community broadband we're also we're often talking about the entire city but in this case, I think we would have seen more like neighborhoods organizing, you know, mm -hmm. a few hundred to mm -hmm. a few thousand um, households to develop business plans to distribute that. Now, that plan is still out there. And the uh, Mayor de Blasio, I believe, um, is has called for, and I don't know what the status is, for putting $167 million, I believe, into one phase of that plan, which would be actually building city-owned Wi-Fi access and other types of connections to public housing units, uh, which I think is a very good start. But frankly, if the are other phases of this that would allow you know your your middle-income families and and everyone else to be connected, that's going to require more organizing and political pressure, you know, on the city in order to make it happen. I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. We had a conversation with one of the community boards. Um, the other evening, and they were very concerned about the uh, the deployment of 5G because it was going to be so close. They have fairly narrow sidewalks uh, in this part of Brooklyn, and the uh, you know the antennas are going to be literally you know 10, 15 feet out people's outside people's windows, and they're concerned about it. So uh, they were curious to know and asking us you know what we knew about the deployment of broadband. So clearly there's a there's an interest in it. So let me just back up. Well, first. if you don't mind, yeah. I mean, I, I actually. Sure. This is important, I think. I think one of the things that reasons people are concerned about this is they feel there's not enough safety information about 5G. And, and I think we are going to see more studies. Um, one of the things that historically we've allowed cities to do in these situations is to make their own judgments about how to handle it. But over the past several years, the, the federal government and in many of the states that are more run by Republicans have really pushed hard to preempt local authority to say that cities shouldn't have the authority to decide where these antennas are sited and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that I think people are concerned about this, I think they need to understand that when powerful industries want to be able to make these decisions without local input, they will take the authority away from the local city councils um, and put it in the hands of the state or the federal government, where the industry is much more powerful. And so, you know, we're seeing a lot more uh, interest among people who previously probably never heard the term preemption, uh, which is when a higher level of government ref mm -hmm. takes power yeah. away from a lower level of government. Yeah. And that's where these fights are. That's what ne we need to make sure our elected officials know that we want to have a say over our lives. And we don't think it's appropriate for, I mean, this is a, as, a, as, as old as New York is, I think you've had this fight between New York and Albany, New York yes. City and Albany. Yes, we have. So, so I mean, but, but other states are just starting to wake up to this, I think. But it's, it's important that people understand that one of the reasons that the city of New York doesn't have much authority over this is because the state and the federal government have, have rigged it, so they don't. <sighs> Yep. Yeah, we know this. Yeah. <laughs> just, we hate to hear you say yeah, it, though. No, it's, 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 <laughs> it's absolutely true. I mean, we, we are seeing so many situations. We have a situation right here in our town where the town didn't realize it was under the shot clock that the FCC had recently put in in 2018 to approve these uh, antenna permits. And, and uh, you know, the company that wanted to put, put up the small cells has sued and won in court. And now those small cells are going to go up with no public 
notice, no public opportunity sure. for comment. It's you know, it's just been a disaster, uh, and people don't people understand. Want to sue the, people the, want to sue the town. Yeah, people want to sue the town. We're like, no, actually, you know, this is the FCC, and well, let's sue the FCC. Well, okay. Well, there yeah. are lawsuits uh, over that, and I think sure. you know, sure. I'm I'm very curious to see what will happen. I think. You know, I mean, I, I'll, I will be the first to, to lay out the faults of many Democrats, but the Republicans have been the ones that have really led on these um, these issues around preemption and yeah. and that sort of thing. I would expect that the FCC will, will restore local authority over some of these matters um, if Biden wins. But there will still be preemption issues that, that we have to be careful about. Right. Sure. And sure. we've got, and like you say, we have to, you know, we have to look at these captured agencies. Uh, it's not just the FCC, uh, it's also the FDA, which has some say in uh, devices. Um, in devices because they actually have control over regulating uh, all of these wireless devices. Um, but that too is a is a captured agency, and you know, hopefully, we will get some some major. Uh, major changes in Washington, and like you say, some of that authority will go back to the local governments where where it belongs. Actually, are you optimistic, Chris, about your organization and and where things are headed, or are you? Uh, I mean, I, I assume you are, but I thought I'd ask anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, I, I am, and I, you know, I, I comfort myself when we have, you know, um, sort of multiple years of losses on, on these issues, by knowing that a lot of times that's what raises people's awareness and makes them realize it's an issue they care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that can help to sort of have that, that three steps forward, two steps back dynamic. You don't, you don't want to lose your mind in the two steps back. But I also think that one of the things that in the longer sweep of history, there was a lot of the technologies that we still depend on today, you know, um, telephone, uh, transportation, particularly rail transportation when that came out. A lot of these technologies encouraged a more centralized, powerful corporation. You know, the railroads were among the first ones, the telephone companies, the electric generation companies. And, and that really pushed a lot of industries to be more centralized. And I think right now, the technological push tends to be decentralized. You know, you look at the, the green technologies that clearly will be creating electricity well into the future. Most mm. of them are more decentralized mm-hmm. or, or suited to be decentralized. Right. Um, you know, electric cars, a lot of those can be manufactured just about anywhere. You don't need to be able to build necessarily huge, massive factories to do that anymore. Right. Um, the Internet itself is very decentralizing. And so I think that, that we're, we're seeing every year less of a push for centralization in the economy. Now, that is counter, counteracted by big banks, which we've allowed to grow far too big. They continue to want all business to be more centralized so they can control it, and it just works out for them. But, you know, I think that over the next 50 to 100 years, the longer term, I think we will see much more decentralization of economic power as smaller units of companies are able to compete more effectively and be more nimble. And that will lead to more political decentralization, I hope. Um, so that's, I mean, that's sort of a, it's probably a longer answer than you were expecting, but I, I feel like there are these larger trends that we can try to look toward and they can give us some hope. Well, right, no. you know, and I think COVID has actually contributed to that sense of hope um, because you're looking at some of these big um, companies that just can't, they, they can't make it. Whereas, you know, the smaller, um, 
you know, ma- I don't want to say mom and pops, but the smaller manufacturers and so on seem to be doing okay. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I feel like, you know, there you really see the distortionary power of bad government policy because, mm-hmm. you know, as, as many of us cut back on how much we eat out, uh, we're almost always eating out at the local businesses, right? We're not right. going to McDonald's <laughs> for right. that rare occasion where we're eating, you know, grabbing food on the go. Um, and so, um, but we are seeing a lot of the federal money goes to the bigger companies. So That's right. um, I think, you know, the COVID will change things in ways that it will take a long time to appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we, we definitely see people put a higher value on a higher quality, affordable broadband connection. You know, many people are switching to cable networks, which mm-hmm. are the best they can get, mm-hmm. away from a slower DSL network. But we can still do better than that, and that's why we need communities to step up. We need local governments to encourage competition with how they're developing their policies, because local governments with the right investments can encourage you know, new competition, whether that's from a municipal network, from some form of cooperative network, or the kind of investments that allow neighborhoods themselves to try to solve these problems. So, you know, Mount Vernon, New York, is very interested in this uh, community broadband. broadband. Very interested. We're going to have a couple of meetings with them. We'd love to, to, you know, pass, pass, pass them along to you. But I love this statement. You know, the fastest networks in the nation are built by local governments, and we should be pushing that everywhere. And Chris, so let me just ask you, when a community is considering this, do they come to you? And, and, and what do you offer at yeah, that point? Yeah, what do you do for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I run muninetworks.org, um, which is the primary way that, that people tend to kind of use our work. Um, it's a website, short for municipal networks, just muninetworks.org, that um, has all kinds of information about what other local governments have done. Uh, for the past eight years we've been publishing stories on the order of several a week sometimes 500 600 stories a year um and what that does is if you know you're looking at mount vernon there's another city that's kind of similar to mount vernon in terms of of its utilities in terms of its population that has gone through this there's probably several that have used different business models and so if mount vernon it wants to think about being its own service provider mm-hmm. then we can share you know what other communities have learned about that and if it wants to consider a model where it would build a network that multiple independent companies would use to compete on we can share stories about that hmm. um so mostly we have a, a platform of of kind of like a research library in some ways and sure. and ongoing reporting about how other local governments have dealt with this yeah i mean the things like- that i'll generally I was just going to say, it's like not reinventing the wheel time and time again, over and over. Yeah, Right. Exactly. And that's where, I mean, the first things that almost anyone, when I talk with local officials all the time, and one of the first things I'll say is, okay, first of all, you really need to figure out what your goal is. Um, Because to some extent, you know, you you might just think, oh, it's better broadband. But what does that really mean? Does it mean better broadband for... Um, for people who have 50 bucks a month that they can pay for it? Is it better broadband for people who are on a fixed income and and are much more limited? Is it focused on the business district? Um, And while it's nice to always say we'd like to do all of those things, (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. that may not be feasible Mm -hmm. based on the the city's, um, you know, capacity. And so it is a matter of figuring out, okay, like, let's think about what our goals are, and then we think about what are the best ways to try to, to get you there. And one of the things that I'll say that I, you know, is that we're strong proponents of community broadband, but we don't think it's a solution for everyone necessarily. You know, in some cases, you know, 
a local provider, a family-owned business nearby that could work with you um, in a partnership. So there's a lot of different things to consider. But the number one thing is to take it seriously and treat it like a real problem and a real uh, priority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is so very I- inspiring to hear you talk about this because I, I, I think this is such a great solution. I think COVID has really brought to the forefront the necessity of everybody to have uh, you know, easy and affordable and reliable and secure access to the and, internet. And safe access. Uh, and, and safe mm-hmm. access so that, so that they can, you know, be part of our our online community. I mean, there are, <laughs> there are of course, issues with that itself, but uh, those that's a whole different conversation. Well, Chris Mitchell, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Green Street. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for your work uh, that you're doing uh, f- on behalf of all those communities have been, who've benefited from your your work, and I hope you'll come back and join us on another edition of Green Street. Right, and we and we would really like to be able to just send your information. Oh, we're going to. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna send people to you. I hope that's okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Watch, no. watch, be, be be prepared. <laughs> Great. Yeah, there are there are no laws in New York State that limit you. So there's a lot that can be done in that area in particular. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest is Chris Mitchell, director of the Community Broadband Networks Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Green Street on WBAI, Patty and Doug Wood, talking about glyphosate, New York City, and pending legislation in the city council. So Patty, tell us a little bit about the legislation itself. What does it actually do? Okay, so the legislation is intro 1524, and this would be a bill that would update an existing law, which is Local Law 37. And that law prohibits the use of some pesticides, but has several loopholes in it that allow uh, some pretty toxic materials to be used by the Parks Department, uh, including glyphosate or Roundup. Okay. And so in the, in the years since 2005, a whole lot has been learned about not only the ability for many of these pesticides that are being used to cause cancer, but also endocrine disruption uh, and asthma and and reproductive problems. And we've so a, we've had a lot of shows on Green Street yeah, interviewing people about various things, and a lot, a lot of it comes back to glyphosate. Yeah, a lot of it comes back to know? glyphosate. Well, one of the reasons is that, you know, they've been touting it on television and radio for years and years and years at how safe it is. Oh, and, sure. you know, they show pictures of you, you know, the guy, the guy, the responsible, quote, unquote, homeowner who's got his little roundup, He's got you his know, little spray little thing. Little spray and wand. He's going to kill that you know, dandelion. And he's going to kill that dandelion line in the driveway and they just tout that it's so safe I mean you could even drink it I mean it's just so safe but in fact we have had research on 
the active ingredient in Roundup, which is glyphosate, for decades, Mm -hmm. showing that it causes exactly what all these big lawsuits are about. It causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma in humans. It causes canine lymphoma in dogs. I was going to say, wasn't the original research that was on canine lymphoma? Well, it it came out simultaneously, the two two things. So we we are really looking at some very serious illnesses that are associated with exposure, and we are also looking at our underserved populations, our black and brown populations in New York mm. City, mm-hmm. which were so heavily impacted by the COVID Epid- disaster yeah. 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 Um, that happened a few months ago, just a few months ago. And nothing to say that that's not going to come back again. I was going to say it's not over but yet. But a vulnerable population. So, you know, there's a lot of pieces that are getting put So what's the correlation here. between glyphosate and and COVID? Glyphosate can co- can cause some of those comorbidities or those diseases that uh, those underlying conditions like that people asthma. have, like asthma, diabetes, neurological problems, immune system dysfunction. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about mm-hmm. immune system dysfunction and COVID? Uh, so this is this is very very concerning and especially since we have this black institute study that was really amazing mm, so yeah. way before we had covid in the city they were looking at how pesticides in parks disproportionately impact people of color mm-hmm. And they came out with this document called Poison Parks, and it documents the use patterns of glyphosate in New York City. And it shows that more of this product is being used in minority communities than in the rest of Manhattan. This was done in Manhattan. Harlem was disproportionately sprayed in comparison with the rest of Manhattan. There, there are a whole lot of things coming together. Environmental racism is, is, a, is a piece of this, this whole picture as well. But it's actually good for everyone. Let's just step back a little bit. You know, New York State passed a law to prohibit the use of all pesticides, not just glyphosate, but all pesticides on school properties in mm-hmm. 2010. Yep. But New York City's kids never benefited from that law because they play on New York City parks. They don't yeah. have their own football fields and you know playing fields and playgrounds the way the suburban and rural schools have. Mm-hmm. And we are you know looking at this bill as also an opportunity to level the playing field, no pun intended, okay, so that New York City kids are also protected by this state law. Yeah. Which they should be. Sure. Absolutely should be, especially because kids in, in Manhattan and in, the, in the, the five boroughs actually are all disproportionately exposed to environmental toxins. So what's the status of the bill? It's, it's got... Uh, status of the bill is that there was a great hearing, I think in December or January, I'm health not committee. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the health committee had a hearing on the bill. It was, uh, there was some really, really impressive testimony uh, coming from medical people. Uh, as well as people who actually understood the mechanism of pesticides on human health and also wildlife. There were people there representing wildlife and domestic pets that Mm -hmm. also use the park. Mm -hmm. That's the way they get outside too. Not just humans, you know, enjoy their green spaces, but pets enjoy their green spaces too and need them you don't really want to go to a park in new york city and worry that it might actually be harmful yeah 
So it's in the city, it passed out of the health committee, it's in the city council, what's happening right now? How come it hasn't passed? Well, it hasn't passed because it hasn't been put on the floor for a vote. And the only one who can do that is Speaker Corey Johnson. So it's sitting on his desk. Sitting on his desk, it's waiting for him to just put it on the agenda for the next meeting. And just to be clear, if he brings it up for a vote, it's going to pass. I think it absolutely will pass. We have 34 co-sponsors, which means that it will pass if it is brought to a vote. So we just need people to call. Should they be calling Corey Johnson's office and absolutely. say, come on, let's get this thing done? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. You need to call the speaker's office and just say, we would like intro 1524 to come up for a vote. Yeah. It's really important that this bill passes. It's 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 for everybody. I mean, this is a win-win for everybody in the city. And it's a win-win for the politicians, too. It's a perfect storm. Parks in minority communities are sprayed with higher levels of pesticides, which in turn increases risks of serious chronic illnesses, which in turn increases the severity of COVID-19. Right? Yeah. These are our underlying comorbidities that make... COVID-19 a much more serious and potentially fatal disease. And so we mm. have an opportunity. We absolutely have an opportunity here to, to fix this one. Yeah. We can fix this one and at least reduce that body burden of chemicals in those minority communities, those black and brown communities across New York City. We can reduce that body burden that is putting their health at risk. You don't often get a clear cut, clear win like that. With no. Essentially no cost to the city. Zero cost. You've been listening to Green Street on WBAI, Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest Chris Mitchell earlier in the show. Uh, we want to give our special thanks today to our engineer Michael G. Haskins and the other engineers and managers at WBAI who keep the station going day after day. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe and be well.